0: You are listening to Hoisting the Sail, a supply chain podcast. From our studio at the Brooklyn Navy Yard overlooking New York Harbor, we talk to the innovators and professionals who use the wind to power the maritime supply chain. I'm your host, Kat Bride. Hoisting the Sail is presented by Wind Support NYC. It is a beautiful spring day in New York, and we are delighted to speak to Don Riley, the Executive Director at Oak Cliff Sailing Center in Oyster Bay, New York. Thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You have an incredible career as a trainer, as a sailor. You've been inducted into the Sailing Hall of Fame. You have an incredible career, but you don't come from a place by the sea. Tell us about where you grew up and how you became a sailor, how you got on the water at the first time, and a little bit about your career arc. And did you think it was going to be a career, Don.
1: Well, first of all, the Great Lakes are arguably a sea. They're mm-hmm. better because they don't have salt, so it's easier to maintain a boat. You can mm-hmm. drink right out of it. I grew up and I have a house now in St. Clair Shores, Michigan, which you look across and from my house, you can see Canada but you have to look a long long way to see it uh you know it's 20 30 40 miles wide mm-hmm. and then the you know the big lakes are hundreds of feet deep so grew up in Michigan sailing in the great lakes with my family my dad was a diehard racer but then he had a wife and children and I was the oldest one so I was the most able bodied I was learned how to trim a spinnaker and drive a wooden spinnaker pole probably uh, around age 5 and then when we were 13 we had the the chance of a lifetime, or it was really not really a chance. My parents planned for years. So we went for a year from Detroit out the barge canal to New York, up to Maine, down to Florida, the Bahamas, the Virgins, Grenada, and back. And that was really when I decided that I was going to be a professional sailor. But those weren't the terms then. I said, I'm going to do the America's Cup. I'm going to race around the world. And everybody smiled, maybe laughed. But it wasn't until I was actually doing it and getting paid and being a professional that I realized it was a career because frankly, back then it wasn't a career. It was an an awesome lifestyle for a very Mm -hmm. small group of people to be able to take owner's yachts to the Caribbean and Antigua and do what Tracy Edwards did, you know, before Maiden.
0: Tell us about the beginning of of Maiden Around the World and uh, about the crew, the skipper and... There could have been a lot of crews that you could have joined, right? As someone as experienced as you and someone who came up really self-taught, what brought you to the maiden? So
1: I was working as a professional boat captain. I was racing on a maxi called Matador Mm -hmm. in St. Thomas. And I heard about maiden and I was encouraged to go and try out with them. And my first reaction, which is in the film, was I'm not going to sail with a bunch of girls because I had never sailed with a whole team of women. Mm. And there weren't that many that looked like me on the professional scene. But I was convinced to go over and... I basically sailed for three days and they said, sure, join the team.
0: They just brought you on. You were already so qualified. It was meant to
1: be. Well, I mean, remember, I'd been a sailmaker. I'd installed electronics. I was a diesel mechanic. I wasn't a qualified U.S. Coast Guard boat captain, but, you know, I could navigate boats to wherever they needed to go. I could fix stuff and I could trim a sail.
0: When did you start seeing this as a skill instead of a hobby that was that you were very passionate about, that it was a skill that you could rely on to make a living?
1: I put myself through college working on boats. Mm-hmm. So I knew it was a living, but I didn't think it was a sustainable living until honestly, the second round of the world and the second America's Cup, I'm like, okay, maybe I'm, this is not just something I'm going to do until I get a real job. Maybe this is something I'm going to do for a much longer period of time.
0: And then part of going to college Was that something that your parents had said, you got to have a backup, you got to do something? Or was that with you where you just wanted to be in that environment with your peers, was able to put yourself through because you had this skill that was in demand?
1: No, I'm older than people nowadays. And college was something that you chose to do. I didn't come from a wealthy background, so you paid for it. So I worked three jobs while I was putting myself through college. And it was what I wanted to do. Uh, I paid for it entirely myself. So probably that emboldened me to be able to say, I'm going to go sail around the world or race around the world. And my parents really didn't have a say in it, although also were encouraging. So that was, it was nothing that stopped me. Now, the interesting part is, is I had a major in advertising and a minor in journalism. I was
0: just going to ask you about that.
1: (laughs) So it helped in between being a sailor And active on campaigns to be able to do speeches, do correspondence, TV for ESPN and OLN and coverage and be able to sell sponsorship. So what I tell people nowadays is the worst thing ever is for people to go to college just because. If you can get a free education, you want to go just because fine. But if you are taking out student loans, there is nothing more heartbreaking than seeing a 22 year old who has $80,000, 100000 in student loans. They have a degree and a career that they realize after a year and a half of working there that they hate and they wish they were doing something different, like being a sale maker.
0: Right. Was there ever a doubt in your mind as you were, were doing your courses, how other people were either um, doing their jobs outside of school or opening up other opportunities? Did you ever think that you might have a life outside of the sea
1: no (laughs) i mean i always have a plan b which is usually something in sailing and then i have a plan x which is hgtv or working for a road crew or um, Mm -hmm. full disclosure when i was younger i was like i'll be a stripper they make money and my sister pointed out that (laughs) i can't dance she's like you can't dance i'm like oh crap now what am i going to do for my plan x But Mm -hmm. I've always had um, backup plans, but no, something on and around boats became pretty important pretty quickly. And remember, by the time I was 30, I was signing up for my second America's Cup, and I'd already finished two round the world. So that was a pretty formulative years.
0: Of course, yes. And I, and I actually wanted to get into meeting your competitors and then teammates then. Can you tell us about Tracy Edwards, now known as a member of the British Empire, an MBE <laughs> for our listeners?
1: Yes, um, we had to curtsy. Back I in bet, the day, I believe you. <laughs> when we mm-hmm. met royal people, um, oh, Tracy's a force of nature. She is, um, the one thing I wish on the film had done is explained a little bit more about how much she did in the sponsorship, the just pure fight, and the navigation. They really focused um, on making her seem like the best all round sailor. Which she would be the first to say she wasn't. It was a team, and there was many other people on the boat that were better actual sailors. Frankly, if you put her as a navigator at that time on that race, she was one of the best. So that to me would be more impressive, but I totally get that it is it is entertainment as well.
0: And and even just to make the documentary. Was that something that you were really cared about or you thought, this is a part of my life that is in the past and I'm proud of it, but I have other challenges to do? Or was it something that you really wanted to look back on? Oh, and, no, I've just, and, and I've just always,
1: I've just always moved forward. I wasn't really part of the documentary. Um, I was over there for, uh, I don't remember, something else. And they said, oh, well, we'll interview her that's why you notice that I don't have any hair and makeup. I was just kind of like an afterthought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, it was part of the story. And then the result was amazing to be able to get together with all of the other women from the team, uh reconnect right. with everybody and and stay in touch. We've always stayed in touch on Facebook, but now we have a WhatsApp group that Angela is mm-hmm. by far the most active in. So, and she's I, hilarious. I, I, and I don't remember mm-hmm. her being that funny in, you know, 8990, but she's hilarious.
0: You were so Wonderful. busy working, probably.
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. there,
0: there's there's uh, other things and personalities and having fun takes a back seat when you have such an ambitious goal to come over. And it's something that we noticed when we watched the documentary is um, there was a really brutal view of women in offshore racing. And I, I know sometimes the conversation can get stale when you're asked about being female in this milieu. But hopefully, you know, you've been around long enough to see some changes. Did you feel that misogynistic atmosphere? Or was it something where, where it was you and your teammates against the world? Or you thought, this is just some nonsense we have to deal with, but we know who we are. We're here to sail. We're here to win. It went in a little bit of phases. Uh, in the beginning, we
1: were just there to go sailing. It's like, hurry up and let's get to the start. If you watch the film and you see the finish at, and Punta del the Mm-hmm. there's I forgot exactly what they're saying but I remember the race director saying whoa it's jolly good that you finished today instead of yesterday because the sun's out today and I looked at him like are you fucking kidding me you right. think we wanted to be a day later and my voice is kind of like eh, eh. you can see it in my face I'm no, just because like because you're a polite I you.
0: a polite person but at that point this guy- Just nowadays.
1: Yeah. But back then we had to play the game more. Nowadays I could say, give me a break. Right. You know, back then Mm -hmm. you had to walk a fine line.
0: Yes, of course. By the time you got to Maiden, you'd been sailing. I'm sure you knew a lot of the players by then. What was it like to feel the respect of your, of your competitors?
1: Well, it's kind of funny because that was the first time that it came to America and there were very, very few Americans in the in the race.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So our competitors and the respect came first from the people I had just met, the other Brits and the Kiwis. And those are the biggest ones, some French, some Argentinian, you know, mm-hmm. all the different people. And then when I came back, there was a huge difference. So before I went, I literally had the person who I was working for say, don't go do that. It's a nice thing to tell your grandchildren you sailed around the world, but it won't be good for your career. And then I came back and he wanted me to work for him again. And I, I close to tripled my weekly rate with him because <laughs> I was like,
0: <laughs> Dawn, I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> yep. All right. Did you ever see yourself as a trailblazer? Did you know that you were stepping out of the mainstream? Yeah,
1: probably been pretty open about it. It was, um, it was harder. No mm-hmm. question about it, but man, was it fun when you broke down a barrier or surprised somebody.
0: Right. And
1: I was not shy about pointing it out when that happened. So, and I'm sure that there are some benefits I got from being 25 year old first female, as opposed to a 25 year old guy. But with that being said, I think I was confident. So, right. If there was a guy that wanted to do what I did and leverage it, they would have been able to get the same benefits.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you pay attention to the scene today? What are the changes that you've seen? And are, are you recognizing the new trailblazers as well?
1: Yes, yes, yes. So that's everything we're doing here at Oak Cliff. And we're training the next generation. We have people in the America's Cups. We, you know, Mark and Charlie are gone around the world twice. I've been extremely creative. And and vocal and getting women onto the boat. For instance, SCA was the they said literally twelve women trying to do what women have never done before: race around the world in a promo. I saw it. I told the organizers it was kind of a preview. And I said, "You're crazy. You can't say that. That's not true."
0: Right. Right. They
1: released it six months later. I was in the middle of a hellish day, and my email and phone and Facebook blew up. What are you going to do about it? And I, in a moment of just my opinion of myself, brilliance, I'm like, I agree with all of you. I warned them. Here is the uh, marketing director of SCA and the head of the team's cell phone numbers. Go ahead and call them. I post them on right. Facebook <laughs> and they, their, their phones blew up and it got taken down. So you have to protect, it, but you also have to support and go back to SCA. The, big difference between SCA which is fully funded and all women was that the women weren't in charge and they weren't the decision makers so yep. Sam Davies was three quarters away around the world with the people that she was told what to do and how to do it and then they go oh we want to empower women because we're not doing so well you choose she's like I I, I I haven't prepared want me just to change the crew in the middle of a race without having any control up until now. So that was insanity. Right.
0: And I'm sure your advertising and journalism background came in because it wasn't the spin you wanted, but it was a spin that, that you were able to um, to adjust. Yeah. When you have an opportunity,
1: you have to fight for it.
0: Right. Of course. Yeah. Part of why we're talking to you now is that you have an event coming up on May 18th. Uh, this is very timely for our East Coast and New York audience. The There's going to be a screening of the Maiden at the Hudson River Maritime Museum. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'd love to hear about who's going to be at the screening, why you're doing it there. We'd love to tell our listeners about this event and everything going on around it. For the event
1: there, everything should be on their website or on the Maiden Factor, because Mm -hmm. this is the funny part. It's a sailboat. So things change, and they're weather dependent. Yes,
0: true. <laughs> so,
1: yep. Yeah, so they're going to be welcoming the, the, the team in. Um, I believe that Val uh, Dolan is going to be the skipper, but that's to be confirmed. I know okay. that Bell Harvey is somebody I've sailed with on super yachts. She's the shore manager. She's doing... An awesome job, and so yeah, the the boat's coming in, and it's going to spend a fair amount of time around the Northeast this summer, which will be great. And it was supposed to happen in 2020.
0: I'd love to ask you the the most obvious question, Don. What is the maiden factor? So the maiden
1: factor is the nonprofit that surrounds the boat and their mission, and the uh, original family and royal jordanian that helped sponsor the boat way back the royal family helped sponsor to refurbish the boat and then the business plan is is that tracy does all of the fundraising for sponsorship for the boat so that all of the donations go directly to uh, education of girls around mm-hmm. the world.
0: The flotilla from New York City to Hudson, mm-hmm. what, what's that route like and what can we expect to be on the river? I'm
1: hoping, Maiden is hoping that everybody and their brother will come out in a boat and welcome them in. So if you can imagine the videos of when we finished in Fort Lauderdale or when we finished in uh, Australia and all, all of those boats and people having fun. I mean, someone wants to bring the Goodyear blimp and it's all to raise awareness and all to raise money to empower girls through education.
0: Mm-hmm. And as I know, what we're getting towards the the time to conclude the interview. We wanted to ask you specifically. You mentioned Charlie before. I'm sure that refers to Charlie Enright, yep, uh, skipper of the 11th hour. Tell us about that journey. That's that's another. Amazing story of mm-hmm. grit and determination and sacrifice, and uh, you know, having been through those tough times yourself and come out on the other side. What's it like to watch another person?
1: It's way harder to watch than it is to to be there, and that's from when I had a fiance who's no longer uh, no he he's no longer my fiance. He's still alive mm-hmm. um, in the America's Cup, or when you have your graduates like. Charlie Enright and Mark Towell racing around the world. And then they have tragedy, like hitting uh, unmarked, unlit uh, illegal fishing boat as they're coming into a finish. That was just horrible, horrible, horrible. But it's amazing to think that they were here at Oak Cliff 10 years ago, and now they're getting ready for their third lap around the planet. And they're just good, solid people. And that's what we say at Oak Cliff, is we're building American leaders through sailing. Otherwise, we're building good human beings. And from the day we got here, everything is as green and greener as we can. Mm-hmm. We're even this year we're taking it up because we have compostable silverware and plates for when we have big events, but we're investing in a um, outdoor kitchen, which we got reclaimed cement blocks and we're building it. And then we'll use real plates and glasses with a outdoor dishwasher so that they can clean up. So we're trying to just take it every, every step.
0: On this show, Don, our raison d'etre is that uh, we believe in a future of decarbonization. And taking those little steps means so much. And part of really why we started this podcast was we believe that in 100 years from now, people are going to look back on our generation and say, why were they using these dirty bunker fuels to take 90% of the world's cargo around Mm -hmm. the world when we've had sailing technology and improved weather routing um for years now this is not your grandfather's uh sailing atmosphere
1: right and you look you look at the racing so in 1989 90 steinlager and fisher and peichel they were catches and so they had mizens, and mizens were seen as old technology but then with the new sail shape you could make it more efficient so that it was actually old technology that was rated as a slow down factor with the new technology, the sales were flatter and it was a fast factor. So you look at that and you go around and around. We just were slowly, con- actually quickly converting to having proper canvas covers made for all of our boats and in the beginning of a nonprofit, we're like oh it's cheaper and quicker for shrink wrap and everybody's doing it and then you take the shrink wrap off you're like dear god even if it's recycled this is horrific and then we start doing the math and we realize that a canvas cover stored properly pays for itself in five years so why wouldn't we and it's so much nicer to work under you know little things like no single-use plastic water bottles anywhere, plastic use anything, metal straws, the whole deal, those are tiny little things, to investing in our future of canvas covers instead of plastic for shrink wrap. I had a friend who said just on Easter that it's about the same price for her to charge her electric car to go to work as it is for her gas car. And I said, yeah, but one's killing us and one isn't. And you just have to say those things out loud to yep. have somebody go, oh yeah, there is that.
0: <laughs> and Don, do you see it as one of your duties as you're teaching the next generation that taking care of our oceans and sustainability goes hand in hand with that? Is, is that kind of a, just an afterthought in a way, or is it just ingrained in what it's like to be a sailor in the 21st century and you know, how technology has changed, but also how our view of the oceans has changed.
1: Most young people here, whether it's because they're afraid of me or it's just the way they are, they're very environmentally conscious. It's Mm -hmm. the parents that are like, oh, my child is gone. I need to order Uber Eats and Amazon and get everything packaged up to them. And we're like, no, we have Stop and Shop in Oyster Bay. They can even walk to it. Right. Right. And and we're one of my goals, one of my long term goals, fundraising is we want to purchase our building because we rent it uh, so we can do proper maintenance. But we have this awesome space where we can have rain collection and we can grow most of our vegetables. Right now we compost and we have vegetable gardens around the base, but they're tiny. They're they're really just for decoration and seasoning. We'd like to be able to grow more food on site.
0: Now, I know that we're getting up to your time limit, so Mm -hmm. I do want to remind our listeners that on May 18th, that is the next big event, that is the uh, screening of the Maiden documentary. That is at the hudson river maritime museum we will have a link to that to sign up for uh, attendance on our website and the maiden flotilla the other date for that is june 8th the boat is coming to new york city Uh, and if you have a boat yourself we do invite you to go out on the hudson and welcome her into the harbor and dawn i wish we could speak to you a little longer but i hope we can have you on the show another time Sure. Thank you so much for joining us. We have been speaking to Dawn Riley, the executive director at Oak Cliff Sailing Center in Oyster Bay, New York. She is an incredible sailor, an incredible career behind her, has been a sailor on the America's Cup, the Whitbread Round the World Race, in addition to many others, and has been inducted into the Sailing Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, It's a name we know and are very honored to be able to speak with today. And thank you again for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me. Excited that Maiden's going to be spending a lot of time this summer up on the Northeast and doing great work. And she also is going to be popping by Oak Cliff at some point. Uh, We might be having secret old team member cocktails, but the boat will be around. And uh, invite everybody who's in the area to also come out here and see the operation we have in Oyster Bay.
0: It's an amazing history. We, uh, we love to pay tribute to the trailblazers and pioneers like yourself. I think it's, it's what sailing is all about, breaking new barriers. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you're not already subscribed, please sign up to Hoisting the Sail wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit Wind Support NYC on LinkedIn. Write to us at podcast at windsupport.nyc.